This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, December 13th, 2022. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kelms. Ahead this hour, Robert L. Brown spent 22 years on the Arkansas Supreme Court. He writes about that experience in his new book, I'll Rise, How Race, Religion, and Politics Shape My Career on the Arkansas Supreme Court. But he also writes about the events in his life that helped shape his vision and aided him in his decision to seek voter approval to be on the state Supreme Court. Our conversation later this hour. First... A new VA health and benefits law expands care to millions of veterans exposed to toxic substances during military service. The name of the bipartisan measure, signed by President Biden in August, is Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxics, or PACT Act. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich spoke with a physician at Central Arkansas Veterans Hospital System in Little Rock, as well as a Veterans Benefits Administrator. Regarded as the largest health care and benefits expansion in the history of the U.S. Veterans Administration, the PACT Act provides medical care to eras of veterans exposed to toxic substances, especially those who served in Southeast Asia, the Gulf War, and post-9-11. Dr. Robert King is Associate Chief of Staff for Primary Care for the Central Arkansas Veterans Health Administration with facilities in Little Rock and North Little Rock. So this really applies to all eras, um, most notably uh, post-World War II um, uh, ionizing radiation registries, the Vietnam era for the Agent Orange registries. Persian and Gulf War veterans um, from 1990 to present um, for both the Gulf War illness and airborne hazards of open burn pit registries and uh, other uh, Gulf War era registries as well, including depleted uranium. Depleted uranium is used to fortify military tanks and certain munitions and is hazardous if ingested or inhaled. Agent Orange was a class of U.S. military-grade herbicides sprayed from low-flying aircraft to defoliate jungle ecosystems and destroy crops during the U.S. war in Vietnam. Over the span of a decade, in the 1960s and 70s, U.S. soldiers handled more than 13 million gallons of defoliant. Those who had primary contact are at risk for developing cancers, B-cell leukemia, multiple myeloma, diabetes type 2, Hodgkin's disease, Parkinson's disease, debilitating skin diseases and hypertension, and more. U.S. military are also at risk from chemical vapors rising from war zone incineration sites, widely referred to as open burn pits. Because such a number of things were um, disposed of, it's really not possible to come up with all of the different uh, toxins. The VA is now using presumptive diagnoses for different conditions, that are seen more commonly among uh, servicemen and women who have those exposures. The PACT Act has greatly expanded presumptive conditions assumed to be caused by exposure to toxic substances during military service, including dioxin, asbestos, chemical weapons, radiation exposure from nuclear weapons handling, and test site cleanup and Gulf War exposures to various bacteria and virus, presumptive conditions don't require veterans to prove their service caused that condition. Veterans only need to meet the service requirements for presumption. An array of conditions qualify for treatment. Many of them are are system-specific. So brain cancer, there are several. um, Any gastrointestinal cancer, um, uh, head and neck type cancers, 
kidney cancers, um, several blood cell line cancers, skin cancer, pancreatic cancer, cancer in the reproductive uh, tract of any type, uh, and then respiratory lung cancers. Um, more interesting is the respiratory uh, illnesses, and beginning with the mouth and the nose, so asthma, um, chronic bronchitis, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, um, chronic rhinitis or sinitis, uh, emphysema, and then uh, some of the less common uh, lung diseases, interstitial lung disease, um, fibrosis, and sarcoidosis. Under the PACT Act, any veteran can request to be screened for toxic exposure. Absolutely. Um, the two main tools that we've used in the past were the environmental uh, exposure registry exams, which are encouraged uh, for, prior, for um, the Vietnam era and the ionizing radiation, um, as well as the Gulf War illness. Um, together with the presumptive conditions that have been used to expand coverage for these conditions that, that veterans uh, may develop due to their military service. Under the PACT Act, veterans with presumptive exposure or associated medical conditions are entitled to free VA health care and compensation. They do not have to be enrolled in VA health care. As for enrolled veterans? Uh, the treatment for them are still free. And that is why we're encouraging all veterans to go ahead and enroll as quickly as possible. Sammy Quillen is Executive Director of Veterans Benefits Administration based in Little Rock. Once they screen those veterans and they determine that they have a service-connected disability, that is when the Veteran Benefit Administration steps in and pay compensation for those benefits to those veterans or their family members. Quillen says all generations of veterans are qualified to apply for PACT Act benefits and health care. And if I may add, the PACT Act, when it came, came up with a presumption, it made it easier for veterans to qualify for these conditions that they was once denied for. And, and along with that, veterans who once applied for those benefits and they were denied and it wasn't presumptive at that time, they can reapply now and they could possibly serve connected for those same conditions that they was once denied for. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs is staging a PACT Act Week of Action this week. Central Arkansas Veterans Healthcare System is hosting a town hall this Thursday, December 15th from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Eugene J. Tobin Healthcare Center in North Little Rock. Veterans Healthcare System of the Ozarks is hosting a virtual PACT Act Town Hall tomorrow, Wednesday, December 14th at 10 a.m. No pre-registration is required. Both medical and benefits experts will be on hand to answer questions. Again, Dr. Robert King with Central Arkansas Veterans Health Administration. I would encourage any veterans listening to engage the VA system. Um, whether they've had no experience or prior experience. Um, and and it, it can be a scary time when you hear a lot of this in the, in, in the news and the media about exposures. Um, the key factors to look out for are persistent or progressive unexplained symptoms. Um, and the single most important thing to do to prevent um, some of the development of these uh, conditions is to maintain a healthy lifestyle. So that is to go get your checkups, um, find out if you're eligible for VA care, and if you are, please come see us. We'd love to see you. To learn more, search the PACT Act official site at va.gov. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. 
Arkansas Governor-elect Sarah Huckabee Sanders says she will reappoint Wes Ward as the state's secretary of the Department of Agriculture. He was first appointed to the position in March of 2015 by Governor Asa Hutchinson. The governor-elect says Ward has done well expanding the state's largest industry and developing relationships with people working in agriculture. The Alice L. Walton School of Medicine now has its first board of directors. The chair of the board is Dr. Lloyd Miner, the dean for the Enterprise of Stanford Medicine, an academic medical center that includes Stanford School of Medicine. The founding board also includes the school's namesake, Alice Walton, and representatives from the University of Texas, Morehouse School of Medicine, and Cleveland Clinic. The school, which will be in Bentonville, will offer a four-year medical degree program integrating conventional medicine with what the school officials call whole health principles. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences is using a first-in-the-state liver transplant procedure. A press release today from UAMS describes the process that allows donor livers to be viable for an extended time. The new technology, according to the release, allowed a man from Cabot to obtain a donor liver from Oklahoma just a week after being placed on the waiting list. The patient had been originally advised his wait could take months or even a year. Later this hour, assessing the chances Governor Asa Hutchinson tries to become President Asa Hutchinson. But he says, you know, I've done everything except to take the next step, which is which is to do it. And he said that's a big step. And uh, he's going to wait until sometime next year, and he's going to go home to Rogers after he exits the governor's mansion and uh, open an office and go to it and do something. And I think the first thing he'll be doing will be finishing his contemplations. John Brummett and Roby Brock talk about what might be next for Governor Hutchinson and what to make of the remarks made by the outgoing chair of the Arkansas Democratic Party. They join us in about 30 minutes. And just ahead, my conversation with retired state Supreme Court Justice Robert L. Brown about his new memoir, All Rise. El programa de información sobre los seguros de salud para personas mayores en Arkansas le recuerda que la inscripción está abierta hasta el 7 de diciembre. ARSHIP ofrece consejo gratuito, confidencial, imparcial y educativo para aquellos que necesitan encontrar el mejor plan de medicamentos de Medicare Part D para 2023. Para más información, 1800-224-6330. This is Ozarks at Large. Robert L. Brown's 22 years as a member of the Arkansas Supreme Court included decisions regarding term limits, death penalty appeals, the Lakeview education case, and matters of business, police procedures, and the press. He writes about some of those cases in his new memoir, All Rise, How Race, Religion, and Politics Shaped My Career on the Arkansas Supreme Court. But he also spends time describing working for Senator Dale Bumpers during a a campaign to unseat longtime incumbent William Fulbright and canvassing to help elect Governor Winthrop Rockefeller. There are also passages about seven years as an English major at Sewanee and Columbia University and memories of living in Little Rock during the struggle to integrate Little Rock Central. Retired Justice Robert L. Brown came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio recently to talk about the book, and I asked him about two anecdotes at the beginning of the book that took place in Richmond, Virginia. His father, a priest at the historic St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Richmond, Virginia, exhibited kindness toward a man who had committed a flagrant act of vandalism. In this particular incident, I'm guessing it's like uh, 48, 49, something like that, this sailor, you know, just 
put his hand through uh, these stained glass windows and these uh, irreplaceable windows. I mean, it really was a tragedy in a sense. But gosh, you know, he made a bad, bad mistake. And Dad thought he was one of God's creatures and stood up for him. And, and then a time you got lost in the woods. It was after a birthday party. And, and, and you come upon a home and a family that eventually helps you get back home. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was at a birthday party, as you say, and somehow, and I had these gold cap pistols, and I was so proud of those cap pistols. And we went out into the, the woods, all of us did, and then we came back and I said, oh my gosh, I don't have the cap pistols. So I went back into the, the woods, and my, as my wife points out, my sense of direction is not my strong suit. So anyway, so I start wandering around in the woods, and I hear this, this voice calling, really, and like, uh, Jason, you know, that sort of thing. And I hear it for a while, and it really wasn't making much sense to me, but I was lost, and I needed help. So I come to this, uh, this house, and this lady is calling out, and I think she's calling for one of her children. And she said, uh, and she was African-American, and she said, what do you want? What do you look for? And I said, well, I, I was at a birthday party. And she said, well, whose house was it? And I said, well, such and such. I don't remember. And she said, well, they live right up the road here. And she said, James, or whatever one of her boys was, James, will you take him home? And James said, okay. And James walked literally about 10 feet in front of me never said a word, and just took me home. And that night, I think I put this in the book, I was really emotional because, you know, I had had any contact with my peers, African-American peers. This was grim Jim Crow. You know, I'm talking about the 40s and the 50s, and this kid had really saved me, you know, at his mother's direction, but still he saved me, and I had a real emotional warm spot in my heart for him for doing that. Obviously, there is Columbia University, there's Sewanee, there's, there's much to come. But do you think those two incidents that happened when you were 10 or younger do help form your adult outlook? I don't think there's any question about it. Um, yeah, the sensitivity to this drunk sailor, you know, and I can just uh, envision what he must have been like. I never saw him. Mm-hmm. You know, there were pictures of Dad in the newspaper but I never saw the sailor. But certainly, and the second incident, as I say, I really had had precious little contact with my peers, my African-American peers. And that was soon about to change in the next 10 years, very abruptly. But uh, yeah, that had a, a major impact. And I'm, I'm sure I, my older sister was kind of my guiding light. You know? I think I say in the book, it's always good to have an older sister defend you. But uh, I talked to her about it. And uh, Your family moved. Your father becomes bishop of the Episcopal Church in Arkansas. Son of a bishop. <laughs> <laughs> and you were actually in Little Rock during the lost year. That's exactly right. I came here. I came here the first year of Forest Heights Junior High School in Little Rock. And everybody else had been to Pulaski Heights Junior High School. So I arrived at a new school, and these schools, frankly, were being built for the western population of the city, which was all white population. 
and forest heights was one of those. And it was a interesting experience. I was ahead a because I'd gone to a what amounted to a preparatory school in uh, Richmond. So I was ahead, and certainly in Latin and algebra and that sort of thing. But socially, it was uh, an eye-opener because I'd gone to an all-boys school. We dated people at our sister school, but we didn't go to class with them. So that was a real uh, eye-opener. And, uh, you know, from there, yes, I went to Hall, I went to Central High School my, my sophomore year. Last year of uh, segregation, they had the key club minstrels and, of course, the football players dancing in tutus and all of that. But the last year and then after that, I went to the new high school, Hall High School, which was in the white part of the city. And that's when all hell broke loose as far as Central High School. Your father, the Episcopal priest by this point, of Ar- or Bishop of Arkansas, uh, against advice of others, defended integration. He did, and that was a very bold uh, step he took. I mean, I'd, I'd put it up against the uh, drunk sailor in, in St. Paul's Church because— you know, the people who had called him to be bishop, not all of them, but the ones who had called him to be bishop, and it's an elected position, voted for him, befriended him when he first got there. You know, some, especially the males, would not talk to him. And that was, uh, that's hard, you know, to be shunned. Uh, anybody who's been shunned knows that. So, yeah, but he had taken a stand. He wrote a book after that first year in Little Rock. Uh, it's called... Uh, uh, Little Rock, bigger than Little Rock, and it basically was telling the story of what had happened from his point of view. But yes, it was very difficult, and I didn't realize to what extent there was a certain amount of danger involved in this because reading Roy Reed's book on Phobos, and I don't know if you've read that, it's a great book, but he talks about the state police following people around Little Rock who they considered to be subversive. And I'm sure my my father was in that camp. So uh, it was a little bit. But, you know, I was a goose in a new world. I was out playing football at Hall High School. So, you know, this was something that was just not too much on my radar screen, except Dad had taken a position and people were, were talking about it. Not so much my peers, mm-hmm. but their fathers. The mothers seemed to be more charitable towards Dad than <laughs> Yeah, the, you write that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think they uh, there was something that was formed called the Women's Emergency Committee to reopen our public schools, and that was Adolphine Terry who set that into motion. And she was just a, a great woman, but she said the men have failed us. It's time for the women to do something. And maybe the the women felt to some extent. Now, not the central high mothers. <laughs> right, right. But some women felt uh, very uh, not uh, so much staunch integrationists, but forgiving in a way and understanding in a way that maybe some of the males didn't. I'm speaking with retired Justice Robert L. Brown. He is the author of All Rise, How Race, Religion, and Politics Shaped My Career on the Arkansas Supreme Court. I want to move into politics. Not to, you know, ignore Sewanee and Columbia and <laughs> law school, but it's so interesting. The Columbia name. was politics. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> but Arkansas politics, because you worked for a couple of, I think, still very much household names in Arkansas, including 
a young man named Dale Bumpers. How did how did you meet Dale Bumpers? Well, Dale Bumpers, um, I had worked with Jim Guy Tucker, who had been the prosecuting attorney, and a man named Clarence Cash, and I helped Jim Guy get elected attorney general. But I didn't want to go to do the attorney general's office. I had left my law firm and decided that I wanted to do something more exciting. So I worked with Tucker and then got helped get him elected attorney general. And I said, I, I don't want to go to that office. I want to go to the governor's office. And you can imagine what – maybe you can – what Dale Bumpers was. He was just uh, the new face on the political scene. And Rockefeller, I think, was probably our greatest governor because he changed the – landscape of what's possible in Arkansas, but he couldn't get anything passed in the General Assembly. So that was left to Dale Bumpers and David Pryor and Jim Guy Tucker and Clinton, some of the others. But Dale Bumpers was just, he would come in town and make a speech, and it was just like being in a vaudeville show. I mean, his his jokes were just like that. Uh, he came right up to the edge of being offensive, <laughs> not politically correct, mm-hmm. but he just had that glint in his eye. And some of his stories I still remember. You work for him do, I, when he runs against Bill Fulbright. I sure did. And that was uh, that was a very – and then went to Washington with him mm-hmm. after he won. And I say in the, the book how um, – well, it was, it was just a tough campaign. I mean, money is always the – the root of all evil in the political campaigns, and we were very careful. But you had to kind of walk the line between working with certain individuals who would like to have walking around money, you know, to pay for getting people to the polls and that sort of thing. So that was dicey. But Dale, I mean, he I understand now, I didn't understand then, that he was way ahead in the polls but we weren't seeing the polls. The only one who probably saw the polls was Archie Schaefer, who was his uh, nephew, not by, mar- by marriage. Mm-hmm. And uh, But we didn't know, so we were working our backsides off to get him elected. And there were certain things that happened that were <laughs> interesting. You, you subbed for him in a debate against Betty Fulbright? I did indeed. Um, How? <laughs> well, I, it was at Hall High School, and you know how these things work. I mean, somebody said, uh, we need to have somebody go over and debate Betty Fulbright. And I was in charge of the 2nd Congressional District, which included Little Rock. So I said, okay, I'll go over. And um, this lovely lady was there. I mean, she, she looked like a you know, well-put-together lady, you know, hair all in place and that sort of thing. But she wasn't shy. And uh, (laughs) we got up there, and it was a pretty civil debate. And why is your boss running, and what does he hope to prove, and and that sort of thing. And I would answer, and then I'd ask her questions. It was probably more my giving a standard speech and her giving a standard Mm -hmm. speech, and then a couple of questions after that. But she was very genteel, I remember that, but she did not like the fact that Dale Bumpers was running against her husband. Yeah. I kid you not. You worked with Dale Bumpers, you worked with Jim Guy Tucker. Does those do those associations inspire you then to eventually seek office? Uh yes. And really the first politician I worked for was uh I wasn't part of his office, but was with the Brockfellow mm-hmm. because I had a mentor whose name was Brownie Ledbetter, and she was kind of the political guru around Little Rock. 
And she called me up and she said, Bob, we need somebody to work the precinct for Wynn Rockefeller. He's running against Marion Crank. And I said, sure, I'll be glad to do that. And I worked the precinct, and, and Wynn won, uh, irrespective of the fact that he had stood on the Capitol steps and defended, um, you know, bemoaned the assassination of Martin Luther King. But Not a popular thing with not the majority a of Arkansans. That's exactly right, but he was uh, very courageous to do that. But I said, sure, I'll, I'll do that for Wynn Rockefeller. And then the, two years later, she wanted me to do the same thing for Dale Bumpers, who was running against Rockefeller because Rockefeller could not get his bills passed. He had marvelous bills, you know, free textbooks, reorganization of state government, raise the income tax, clean up the prisons, for gosh mm-hmm. sake. I mean, they, they were cesspools. And he did do that, but some of the other programs he couldn't get through the General Assembly. Dale could and did. So picked up on that vision. When you're running for the state Supreme Court, what did you realize was the biggest difference between being the candidate and working for the candidate? Well, you have to pretty much uh, put on a mask. Uh, Making speeches every day was not something that came easily to me. I had it in my genes because my my dad was a marvelous speaker. My mother was uh, not as marvelous, but, but dad was. So it was part of my gene pool, but it was difficult. It was difficult for me to get out and, and put on that mask and become Bob Brown, the candidate. I could give advice to political operatives and those who were seeking office, but being the, the seeker myself was uh, very different. And the funny thing about my campaign was my wife, Charlotte, who has never met a stranger, <laughs> never met a group of people she doesn't like, she was just invaluable. And she and I never thought we were going to lose. Everyone else thought we were dead meat. <laughs> so it was an interesting campaign, but we had a good time at it. There's a there's a movie with Robert Redford called uh, The Candidate, where he's mm-hmm. running for Senate, and, it, and he's a sort of a – it's an upset. And at the end, he's elected and he goes, now what? <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> right. And I wonder, is it like that when now you've – won a seat on the Arkansas Supreme Court. Now you are a sitting justice. What's the first few weeks like? Well, you get good good clerks, law clerks. Mm. And I got two, really three of the best because my administrative assistant who did all the secretarial work was also someone who could do some of the minimal uh, legal work. But I had great law clerks. We didn't have an orientation. It was just kind of throw him out of the nest and see how he flies. But, uh, you know, you learned it was on-the-job training. And it, it was difficult, but everybody in the Justice Building, I'm talking about the, the, uh, what, the filing office, the uh, clerk's office and that sort of thing, they were all very, very interested in me and in trying to help me because my campaign had gotten a lot of attention. So... I would imagine being a state Supreme Court justice can be emotionally taxing. Yes, and it, it taxed me, and it was my fault. I mean, I thought, my gosh, I'm on the Supreme Court. I've got to just knock the ball out of the park every day. And uh, I did a 24-7 routine for about five, six, seven years. And that's hard on the family, hard on me, et cetera. 
and I think I put, I know I put this in the book. There was a man named Joe Lieberman who was running for the uh, vice presidency with, uh, I think, um, Al Gore. Uh, Al Gore. It was the exactly. Gore Lieberman, 2000. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm thinking, here's a man who is uh, running for vice president, who is one of the leaders in the Senate, and he takes off one day a week. He was an Orthodox Jew, and he did not work on the Sabbath. And I said, my gosh, you know, what am I doing wrong? (laughs) I'm killing myself. And I just cut it back a bit. I didn't take it so seriously, and it really was one of the best decisions ever made. Probably saved my marriage and mm-hmm. fatherhood and everything else. But uh, Yeah, I remember Sandy Koufax didn't pitch a game in the World Series because it was on Yom Kippur. That's exactly right. And Exactly right. And what's the uh, Chariots of Fire movie where the guy right. wouldn't race because right. it was on Sunday on the Sabbath? But, uh, yeah. But I learned from that. I thought that was a, a great lesson about life and, you know, maybe taking it way too seriously. I wanted to do a good job, but not to the detriment of myself and my family. But at the same time, I mean, you are on, I mean, that title, Supreme Court of mm-hmm. Arkansas. Yep. There are decisions being made that affect lives. Oh, there's no question about that. I'm, I'm not saying I gave up no, the job. No, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I just, I, just uh, I, I talk things over more with the law clerks. I use their research more. I would always write my own opinions, and that was good. But I relied on them more than I had before, and I always had interns who came in during the, the summer. But, yes, you're exactly right. I mean, what we were dealing with, my son went, uh, snuck out when he was about 11 and saw Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he came, he came home, and I found out he'd seen it. And I said, well, son, you shouldn't have done it. But I want to tell you, I have seen worse than that on the Supreme Court. And I had, you know, I'm just grisly stuff. They said, oh, Dad, no, not, nothing worse than that. And then about two months later, you had the Jeffrey Dahmer case breaking the news. I said, see, here you go. But we did. We saw it all. And, you know, it's uh, the the murder cases, the uh, capital murder cases, and the death penalty cases were among the hardest. Yeah, you write about the struggles that you and fellow justices would have when, you know, you're the last line perhaps between— a death sentence being That's, carried out. And you always knew when the execution was, was happening because, you know, it was publicized. And so it was very much on your mind. And, uh, yes, that, that they were uh, exceedingly tough to, to go through. I should mention that also in this book, throughout, are references to Dante and Tennyson and all the great writers because you're a lover of literature. Well, I, I made the comment early on that uh, to a, I belong to a book club. It's a, really a dinner book club, and it's 15 men. And I made the comment to them one night. I said, you know, I was a pretty good judge and pretty good lawyer but I was a hell of an English major, <laughs> and they fell out. No, I did that for seven years, and uh, I just decided that one day I, I wanted to make more of a difference, and I didn't want to be an, an English professor. One of the scholarships I got to go to Columbia was on the basis that I would at least consider uh, being an instructor or a professor in higher education, 
and I decided that was just not my, my strong suit. And I really decided one night in New York City, one Saturday night, that I was going to apply to law school. You were on the bench for 22 years. 22 years. When you left, did you miss it? Uh, I felt one of the reasons I left was that I had – it was becoming a little bit too routine. Mm. And I said, if this job is becoming routine, somebody else needs to do it. And I was like in my 70s when I left, and I said, you need somebody younger, a new set of eyes, new set of character mm-hmm. <laughs> built on race, religion, and politics. You know, you just need somebody else in the position. And I thought that was, uh, that was devoutly to be wished, and that's, one, that's the main reason I left. This book is so good because it has so many connections to Arkansas. And one of my favorites is you got a piece of advice when running to put the Arkansas football schedule on a refrigerator magnet for you because then your name would be on that refrigerator throughout the fall. Yeah, and my opponent, Judith Rogers, says, Bobby, you're running for coach? (laughs) That's exactly right. I had my basic information on a palm card. You flipped it over, and there's the Razorback football schedule. And the man who recommended that I do that was a man, a good friend of mine, a lawyer named Henry Hodges. And it was a winner. And I'll tell you one story. I was up in Searcy, and I was handing out these cards, and I handed it to a guy named Mike Beebe. <laughs> and Mike Beebe was a state senator then, and he said, well, you know, Bob, I'd vote for you if you had the ASU schedule. <laughs> And I went to my other pocket, and I had it. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I was ready. Um, when you look back at what you've put in this book, All Rise, How Race, Religion, and Politics Shaped My Career on the Arkansas Supreme Court, what do you think? <clears throat> About what I accomplished yeah. or what the job did, what I did for people, what the job did for me. I thought it was a very exciting. It, it lived up to all its uh, expectations in the sense that I could do some good things. My opinions, I could write some, some opinions, which, as you say, shaped a lot of people, a lot of lives throughout the state, including uh, the Lakeview decision, mm-hmm. which really reformed education. So, yes, I mean, it really lived up to expectations in that sense. I could always write opinions and do the research with my law clerks or without. The hardest thing about being on the court were the other personalities. You had to get four votes, mm-hmm. and that's a, a different kind of politics. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't think – I don't recall much give and take. Like I'm going to water down this opinion if, you, if I can get your vote. But still you had to be convincing. But what do I think? I think it was uh, – the apex of my career. And I think, uh, what do you want other than to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? And that's what every justice should strive to do. And that's a tall measure, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So hopefully I'd send it to at least one of those. (laughs) The name of the book is All Rise, How Race, Religion, and Politics Shaped My Career on the Arkansas Supreme Court. Justice Robert L. Brown, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Retired Justice Robert L. Brown served on the Arkansas Supreme Court for 22 years 
and his new memoir is All Rise, How Race, Religion, and Politics Shaped My Career on the Arkansas Supreme Court. It is published by Johns Wood Press. He talked with Kyle last week at the Carver Center for Public Radio. And we've talked with many writers on this show in 2022. We're not quite done yet. Last week, I chatted with Northwest Arkansas resident Bethany Cole about her new translation of the old English poem, The Wanderer. Because it's a figure of speech, we don't know exactly what they mean by it. Do they mean it literally as the compound word? Or is it something that's supposed to be representative of something else? Like the compound is a new word altogether. And you don't always know. Um, So the word earth stepper could just mean someone who wanders the earth. But in some instances of its use, there's also some negative connotations with it, almost a kind of foreboding or ominous even. The challenges and joys of translating across millennia with Bethany Cole. That'll be part of our show next Tuesday, December 20th. This is Ozarks at Large. The KUAF Giving Tree has been lit. This annual program from your public radio station benefits an area nonprofit that's looking for help from our community. This month of December, we're partnering with Seven Hills Homeless Center, which works to develop and implement collaborative local solutions that foster hope, opportunity, and stability for people experiencing homelessness. Seven Hills provides a wide range of basic needs and housing services and works with other groups to help decrease homelessness in our community. Right now, Seven Hills' biggest needs are canned soups, coats, socks, gloves, and winter hats. You can drop off your donation of new or gently used items at KUAF, 9 South School Avenue in Fayetteville. You can find more information about Seven Hills at sevenhillscenter.org. The Giving Tree and KUAF Public Radio make your voice matter. Matthew. Yes. The space below our Giving Tree mm-hmm. is becoming smaller every day because... I mean, so many people are driving up and, and delivering coats and boots and socks and canned soups. Yeah, as as we were spending a lot of time in the control room last week, we had a pretty good view of the tree from the control room and just seeing person after person unloading their trunk full of stuff, full of gifts. Um, it's just a really good reminder of what a wonderful and generous community we have here with KUAF. And all you have to do is come to 9 South School, mm-hmm. and that we're across from the Fayetteville Public Library. Yep. It's easiest, it's best if you come, you know, between 8 and 5 yep. during the normal business hours. But someone's always here to help you. If you, I mean, you mentioned people opening their trunks. There have been a lot of people with multiple trips needed yeah. from car to lobby. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, there are times where it's like, oh, hey, let's go give them a hand because yes. they've got so much stuff. Um, and it's just been really um, a really good reminder of the kind of community we are lucky to have mm-hmm. here in Northwest Arkansas um, to have the sort of folks who are excited to give. They right. come in and, and they will tell us, like, I'm so glad you're doing this and I'm so glad I have an excuse (laughs) to be generous and like uh, funnel that generosity in such a meaningful way. Also, speaking of the lobby, nice little event to end our business day yesterday. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we had the retirement party for longtime general manager Rick Stockdale. Um, He was your boss. He was never my boss, but he was my advisor at the University of Arkansas um, and had a pretty big impact on just about anybody who went through the journalism department at the University of Arkansas. And if you think NPR and public radio in Northwest Arkansas, the Arkansas River Valley has an impact on you, I mean, Rick's the one who who brought NPR here. Yeah, absolutely. 
The University of Arkansas will host about 1,400 students for fall graduation on Saturday. There will be two ceremonies: graduates from the colleges of arts and sciences, engineering and agriculture, food and life sciences will receive diplomas Saturday morning at 8:30 in Bud Walton Arena. Graduates from the schools of law and architecture and design, along with graduates from the colleges of business and education and health professions, will then be celebrated at a 12:30 ceremony. That too in Bud Walton Arena. Both graduation events will be live streamed on the University of Arkansas YouTube channel. Was your graduation live streamed on the YouTube channel, Kyle? <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, nor was it in Bud Walton Arena. No, oh. that was Barnhill days. Well, I'm two for two there. Yeah, mine was, and I was in Bud Walton. All right. The University of Arkansas Fort Smith will also host graduation ceremonies on Saturday. The first commencement will begin at 10, and the second at 1 Saturday afternoon. About 600 students are expected to receive their diplomas at UAFS. Both ceremonies will be live on the UAFS YouTube channel. We did not have any butter churning taking place though at my graduation. That's yes, yeah, we've, we've got we've got. Uh, <laughs> you can narrow trimming, down. Yeah, we're yes. trimming the timeline down. And speaking of live streams, Arkansas PBS will offer a live stream of Congresswoman Liz Cheney's appearance at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville Monday night. That will begin at six at Crystal Bridges. It's in conjunction with the museum's exhibition. We the people, the radical notion of democracy. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. Four Cities Al Green has seen stardom in both rock and gospel music. He was born in 1946 and grew up singing gospel music with his large family. He formed a band and had a minor hit in 1967, but became a star two years later when he moved to Memphis and began recording with Willie Mitchell's High Records. His song "Let's Stay Together" reached number one in 1971, and he had six other top ten hits between then and 1974. His turbulent personal life took a toll on him, but in 1976 he purchased the full gospel Tabernacle Church and was ordained as a minister. He earned eight Grammy Awards when he began recording gospel music. Green later collaborated with such artists as Patti LaBelle, Annie Lennox, and Lyle Lovett. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1995, the Gospel Hall of Fame in 2004, and received Kennedy Center honors 10 years later. Green, the father of six children, still lives in Memphis and preaches at his church. To learn more, visit EncyclopediaOfArkansas.net. This is Ozarks at Large. Governor Asa Hutchinson's second and last term as governor ends in just a few weeks. What's next could be a campaign for the Republican nomination for president. The transition for the governor is a starting point for the latest conversation between Roby Brock from our partner, Talk Business and Politics, and John Brummett, a political columnist for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Roby asked John what he thought the chances are that Governor Hutchinson will embark on a run for the White House. Seventy-nine point seven percent. It's. I, uh, I give it higher odds than that. So. Well, yeah, probably could go higher. You could go into the nineties. I just put it this way: he surely, clearly wants to. He clearly has done all the preparation uh, that he that he wanted to do at this point, and is pleased with that. He talks conversationally of traction that he's getting. Uh, And he analyzes it as a, uh, in, in an active way. He's not detached when he analyzes it. Uh, but he says, you know, I've done everything except uh, except uh, uh, make the, the the take the next step, which is which is to do it. And he said that's a big step. And uh, he's going to wait until sometime next year, and he's going to go home to Rogers, 
after he exits the governor's mansion and uh, open an office and go to it and do something. And I think the first thing he'll be doing will be finishing his contemplations and probably, most likely, uh, deciding to do it. I think that's what's in store for him and and uh, and us uh, next year. I think there's no uh, harm in forming an exploratory committee and just seeing where it goes the first uh, few months there. Uh, what do you right. think, Asa Hutchinson, what, what does he think his legacy will be as he exits office? And, and if you agree with that, then I'd like your perspective yeah. on it, too. Well, I don't want to give away too much of the of the piece I've written for you, your uh, publication that will be published sometime next year, but I'll just have to tell this much. I said, it seems. Tell me if you agree with this. Your your governorship will be is going to be defined uh, for history by two things uh, thrust upon you. One was uh, the pandemic. Uh, uh, and, and the other is trying to be a pragmatic conservative and modernize the state uh, at a time that conservatism took a decided turn to the extreme right in your legislature, in your state, trying to manage both those very difficult situations. Uh, he pondered that for a second and said, I accept that. I, I, think, I think in the big picture, that's what it's about. Uh, his governorship will be recorded, I think, as one of the state's uh, uh, most effective. Uh, you know, we've had job growth. We've had surpluses. He steered us. Whether you agree with what he did or not, he showed leadership and accountability during the pandemic. He managed to fend off some of the culture right things that he thought would be destructive. And, uh, you know, he's going to be in those uh, the, uh, the top five or six governors, I think, when, uh, uh, when history... Uh, when the historians update the list, seems to me. I agree with you on that. And I, I think an important other chapter in that book for his legacy is going to be tax cuts. I mean, lowering that top tax rate from 7% to below 5 is is pretty phenomenal in a short period of time, particularly considering the circumstances. Yeah, and to, do it, and to do it and produce surpluses with no, I mean, there are things progressives can find that he should have spent on, but without any harm helped in great measure by all the COVID relief money that flowed in. But, but, but yes. And there's something about 4.9, getting it under five makes it seem like it seem like it's not five, you know? So it's like, the, it's, so it, uh, that actually sounds better, but yeah, that's, uh, that's one of uh, his prime uh, pragmatic conservative accomplishments and he's certainly proud of and, and should be from a Republican conservative standpoint. That 4.9, that's an old Sam Walton retailer trick there. Make It's, it's 99 cents, right. less than a dollar. I mean, come on. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, it just, it just makes it seem so much lower when, when it's 4.9. Yeah. All right. Exiting from the state Democratic Party this past week, we've learned that Grant Tennille, uh not going to seek the chairmanship anymore. What do you make of uh, what all he's had to say in his uh, – short but uh, explosive exit interview. Uh, I did not know just how dire things were for the Arkansas Democratic Party as an institution, as a functioning place. I mean, I knew it was dire politically, it continues to be dire politically, 
but I never thought about the fact that uh, he was sitting down there behind locked doors in, in those headquarters uh, by himself with a phone to his ear begging for money to get a debt paid off. And then when the toilets don't work, fixing them himself. Uh, th that's where the Democratic Party was. He will tell you, I think he told, he told me that he got a call from, I guess, the guy he respects most in the world. Uh, the man he worked for and heading economic development, Mike Beebe, and Mike Beebe said, you've got to do it. We, 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 it's the, you have no choice. You'll be crazy to do it, but you've got to do it. Uh, we need somebody to get in there and, and, and restore a functioning uh, Arkansas Democratic Party. And uh, he did it because Beebe wanted him to. And now several hundred thousand dollars have been raised. They got a, they got a few uh, uh, employees and he, he said, I was the mechanic uh, and, and, or the plumber in some respects. And, uh, and I've done my job and I'm tired. And he's going to be around. He's going to help. Uh, you're not going away forever, but he needs to step away. And because uh, the emergency uh, job is, seems to be uh, uh, handled. So uh, there's an old thing about uh, the way you tested a typewriter, a ribbon, you typed all good men come to the aid of their party. He was a good man who came to the aid of his party. And, uh, and, and now they've got a little bit of a party to go with a little bit of a legislative delegation. And, uh, and the plumbing's fixed. So got to watch out making those references to plumbers in political uh, speak there. You know. <laughs> that is true. That is true. A, a dire day. Plugging leaks. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. That's right. Uh, any idea who might succeed him? Have you heard any names floated about? I have. I have, and I hate to put it uh, put it on her. This is going to be a tough job, but um, the person I'm hearing most, uh, and this may be wishful thinking by others, is is uh, Megan Godfrey, the uh, state rep the former state representative from Springdale, who showed some bipartisan legislative passing uh, uh, skill, and the Republicans thought so much of her, they redistricted, redistricted her right out of her district. Uh, and and she is either interested or people are interested in her doing it. Yeah. And, uh, and and that's the name I hear most prominently. But with Grant hanging around, I even heard he might be the executive secretary. I don't, I think he, I think he wants to be more detached from that, but, uh, but, but helping the new, uh, the new person. So keep an eye on her. Uh, and uh, she may be, as soon as she sees this, uh, screaming and calling and saying, no, no, no. But that's, that's, uh, that's the name I hear. John Brumman is a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. He spoke with Roby Ruck from our partner, Talk Business and Politics. They also discussed the departure from the Democratic Party of Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema this week. The full conversation can be found at talkbusiness.net. <laughs> Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, representing local artists. One of the reasons Art Ventures exists so that we can be that brand for them, so that we can put them in rooms that they've never been in, so that we can go and we can speak on their behalf and not only get them in those spaces, but if we sell, we sell at 
premium prices. So we want people to actually respect the craft of the artist and not try to make a bargain out of it. Lakeisha Edwards, the executive director for Art Ventures, discusses how the gallery not only offers a brick and mortar home for art made here, but takes the art out of the gallery too. That's tomorrow at noon and 7 and on the Ozarks at Large podcast. It's all quiet on the Razorback basketball front as finals continue on campus. The 21st-ranked women's team will next play Saturday afternoon against the number 16-ranked Creighton in Omaha. Arkansas is one of eight teams in the national poll still undefeated. They don't play at Baldwalton again until Thursday the 29th when they open SEC play against LSU. The 10th-ranked men's team, 9-1 this year, also returned to action Saturday afternoon with a 3 o'clock game against Bradley at Simmons Bank Arena in North Little Rock. Their next home game, Wednesday the 21st, against UNC Asheville. The breaks are even longer for the John Brown University basketball teams. There are no games for either the men's or women's teams until January 5th, when both squads are in Plainview, Texas, for games with Waylon Baptist. There are no home games for JBU until January 14th, a month from tomorrow, when the Eagles will host Southwestern Christian at Bill George Arena. The JBU women are 9-4, and four, and the men are 3-10. and 10. And the University of Arkansas-Fort Smith basketball teams aren't on their home court for games until December 30th. Before that, each plays Monday the 19th at Oklahoma Christian University. Men's team will go into their game then. Five and five, the women, three and seven. Every day at KUAF, we ask questions. That's a good question. I think right now... Uh, yeah, that's that's a really good question. I, oh, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, I so that's a good question, and I wish I had more data for you. But. Yeah, it's a good, really good question, like how it's different. Yes, yeah. that is a terrific question. Asking the questions that matter to get you the answers you need. You can help keep Public Radio curious when you donate. Give online at supportkuaf.com. And thanks. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Decatur, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Roby Brock, and Mark Christ. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio. Thanks for being with us. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Stay dry and... Be well.